Daily life can bombard us with worries. Questions of what if swirl around our hearts and minds and leave us distracted and unsure of tomorrow. But instead of asking what if out of worry and anxiety for the future, God invites us to ask the question, what if with expectancy and faith in Him? The God of the universe can move mountains and place stars in the sky. And so today, let's ask, what if? Hey, we are in a little series called What If, and uh, really we're kind of thinking, dreaming, and exploring the possibilities of God's presence in our life and how that changes everything. And, and if you recall, you know, week one, we kind of looked at, well, how could you live with certainty in the midst of uncertainty? Well, you can do that because we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. You know, we, we talked last week about how could, is it possible that God could actually use our limitations, our weaknesses, our lids to, uh, um, to accomplish his purposes. And I had some amazing stories uh, uh, this week. In fact, I spent a little bit of time with the, the ladies who come on Thursday morning. They've got a knitting group. Uh, any of you guys knit? I don't know if they're here. They were probably in first service. I'm not sure. Some of them are here. And uh, we had a great time together. And I got to hear some of the stories. Um, you know, there's a group of ladies that meet here every Thursday. They don't just knit. They pray for all of us. How many think that's pretty amazing? I think it's awesome. You know, I told them, look, I told them, I said, look, I can pray with you, but I can't knit. And I think they're going to try and get me to learn how to crochet. So this will be fun. But, um, but I'm just, it's amazing just to hear the stories even this week of how, man, I was in a situation and, and I thought it was like a lid, a weakness, a limitation, but I see now how God used it to accomplish his purposes. And I think that's the story of the kingdom of God. That's the story of what it means to follow Jesus because he works all things together for are good, right? Um, For those who are called according to his purpose. And so I just loved hearing some of those stories. But this week, we want to take a look uh, at another question. And the question is simply this. What if you're supposed to be a part of a bigger story? What if you're supposed to be a part of a bigger story? In fact, what if the story that you're a part of isn't big enough to answer some of life's questions? And, and isn't it true that all of us, as we go through life, we, we all have questions, don't we? Many of them are unanswered. Many of them are, man, I wonder what, that might, what the answer to that question might be. But, but the question that I want us to ponder, to consider, to think about this week is, is what if God is inviting you into a bigger story? Something that's bigger than your current reality. Something that's bigger than what you can see and touch and with your, all of your senses. There's something that God might have that's beyond, that's above, that's bigger than what you currently are experiencing. What if you're supposed to be part of a bigger story? Now, the reality is that all of us love stories, don't we? I mean, to be, to be honest with you, all of us are hardwired. The human brain is actually hardwired for stories. And I, w- I want to actually take a moment to prove this to you, to just, just for a moment. So um, how many of you have missed going to the movie theaters? You know, they, they've opened up and, and you're starting to go back. You know, well, we thought we'd bring the movie to you this morning. So if you're sitting comfortably, all right, husbands, just slip your hand next to your wife's, hold hands, you know, uh, if, there's, if you're single and somebody cute sitting next to you, you know, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. But I want you to see this movie clip. Just let's take a look at this clip and I'll be right back.
Yeah, some of you husbands and wives, you're holding hands now, and right. Let me ask you a question. What kind of story was that? A love story. And, and so do you recognize that here was this movie, Wally, in 2008 that came out with no words, but the human brain was able to put it together and, and it was, you were able to derive not only emotion, because all of you went, aww, when it started, and then you laughed and you thought it was cute, but not only did you engage emotionally, the other thing that you did that you were able in your brain to put it together and define and give it meaning, give it purpose. And the point that I'm simply trying to make this morning, and that was just a little illustration to help us understand that the human brain is wired for story. We're hardwired for story. We love stories. Stories actually are what help us define meaning and purpose in the world in which we live. And as Americans, we spend billions of dollars every year, maybe not over the last 18 months, but we spend billions of dollars over, over decades and each year going to the movies. We love movies, right? Books and the sale of books, be it digital or in, you know, the, 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 the old kind of paper versions, right? Like we love stories and we spend billions of dollars on stories. Why? Because stories help us uh, derive meaning and purpose from life. Recently, the Olympics were on, right? How many watched the Olympics, right? Or the Paralympics, right? And, and millions of people, that's why NBC spends millions, if not billions of dollars on the Olympics. And if you notice, one of the things that they do with the Olympics is that they don't just show you sporting events. What else do they do? They tell you stories. Why? Because we as human beings connect to stories. There's this quote, it's by this guy, a Scottish-American philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre, and he says this, man is essentially a storytelling animal, a teller of stories that aspire to truth. In other words, we're searching for meaning, we're looking for truth, and so as a result, we're always chasing after stories to help us understand what that is. That means I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself being a part of? And, and what, what this philosopher is, he's thinking about life and humanity and purpose and meaning and storytelling. What he's trying to help us understand that, that if we're going to understand what we're to do or how we're to live, we first and foremost must understand the story that we're a part of. And every single one of us is part of a story. We live our life. In fact, every life in this room is writing a story is part of a story and the story and the way you live your life and how you live your life and the story that you tell through your life is based on the story that you believe that you're a part of. So how is our story shaped? Where do we find the kinds of stories that really do give us meaning and purpose? And, and once again, we can find these in the culture in which we live, right? That culture has tons of narratives that it tries to deliver to make sense out of meaning, purpose, identity, uh, all kinds of philosophies or ideologies that filter down into the stories that we hear or we experience or that we tell ourselves or that are told to us. In fact, if you think about it, in the world in which we live, and, and if you were to go to a bookstore, this is why the self-help section of many bookstores, or Amazon, I guess in this case, is so large. 
Because so many people are looking for meaning, purpose, and identity. They're trying to figure out this story called life. And culture informs and teaches and shapes the stories that we believe that we're a part of. You could also find yourself, uh, the story that you think you're a part of, being shaped by your family of origin, your upbringing. There's personal stories that have impacted you, the home that you were raised in, the, maybe the way that your parents raised you, the, way, the stories that they told you, that you have value and meaning and purpose if you get this kind of a job or you live this kind of a life, right? All of these stories shape the story that we believe that we're a part of. So you can find them in culture, you can find them in personal upbringing, you can also find them in the relationships that you and I are a part of. And so all of these things shape the stories that we believe that we're a part of. But the question that I wanna ask us this morning and have us consider is, is it possible that this book right here, the Bible, is actually the thing that ought to be the story that we recognize that we're most a part of? as we talked about in great group, or Greek one, that this would actually be the greater reality in life, that it would be something that we would be a part of, something bigger, something more purposeful, something that would, make, would help us to understand. Now, it's interesting because we have all these options for where we could find stories and the kinds of stories that would shape our life. But as we consider the fact that is it possible that God would invite us into a bigger story, I want us to consider the Bible this morning. Because the Bible is a story. Now, that's hard for us to believe sometimes, isn't it? Because it's really kind of confusing to read, especially when you get into like Leviticus, you know, or numbers, you know, and you're just reading through pages of genealogy. Gareth, are you really sure this is a story, right? I mean, there's all these different literary styles, right? There's poetry, and there's history, and there's letters, and there's inspiration, and then there's the genealogies, of course, and, and even Paul, at the end of a lot of his letters, he's writing the names of all of these people that he wants to thank or that have influenced him, right? Are you sure, Gareth, that this is really a story? It's not just a collection of stories? I mean, it's 66 books. There are 35 different human authors that the Lord inspires and uses to write this book. How could this be a singular story? But the thing that I want us to consider this morning is that this is a story. And it's the story of God. And the story that the Bible tells actually has a name. And that name is the gospel. The Bible is a story. And the story that it tells is the gospel. It's a bigger story than many of us understand. In fact, oftentimes we use that word gospel, and it's kind of like an old-time religion word, right? You know, it's like if you ever, if you're a little older, and maybe you listen to the Gaithers, you know, anyone, anyone into the Gaithers, right? I have a, I have a good friend that I tease all the time because he's not that old, but he listens to the Gaithers, you know. So anyway, not that that's bad, right? But it's like an old-timey religious kind of word, right? You know, the gospel, right? Gospel tent meetings and gospel this and gospel that. But but man, what is the gospel? And, and, And for many of us, you know, if you're outside the church, it's not really a word that we use that often kind of outside of the context of the church. But even inside the church, is it possible that perhaps we have limited the gospel or we have narrowed it down to something that doesn't tell the full extent of the story that God is trying to tell through the Bible? 
And the point that I'm simply trying to make is that oftentimes we hear the word gospel, and when I say that the story that the Bible tells us is the gospel, well, Gareth, don't you mean that the gospel is kind of me when I, you know, I'm here I am, I'm a sinful human being, and I've fallen short of God's glory, and I need someone, a savior, to come and rescue me, and Jesus leaves heaven, and he comes and lives the life I couldn't live, wouldn't live, and never will live. He willingly goes to the cross, right, and he dies on the cross, but then he rises from the dead three days later, and then he sends into the heavens 40 days after that, and, or 50 days after that, and, and ta-da, there's the gospel. That somehow, that's the gospel. Well, if that's the story that the Bible tells, I want to suggest to you this morning that it's incomplete. That there's more to the gospel than just my sin and Jesus coming to save me so that I can get a golden ticket to go to heaven. There's a whole lot more meaning. There's a whole lot more purpose. There's a whole lot more for me in that story that ought to shape how I order my life and live my life and plan the rest of my life here on planet Earth. And, and so oftentimes we short circuit what the gospel really is. Now what's really interesting is that oftentimes we can think of the gospel as something that just applies to that moment of salvation. You know that, you know when the organ plays softly and the preacher asks if I want to accept Jesus and I raise my hand? You know that moment right there, right? Or when I was a kid in my bedroom, you know, my parents came and sat on the end of my bed. That moment right there, yeah, that's when the gospel gets applied, right? But the problem with that is that the gospel has got so much more. I love what J.D. Greer says. He says it this way, the gospel is not just the diving board, it is the pool. In other words, what he's trying to help us to understand is that the gospel doesn't just apply to that moment when I give my life to Jesus and then I've got to figure out the rest of my life and hopefully hold on, you know, live good enough, try hard enough so that I can get to heaven. Is it possible that there's a bigger story that the gospel tells? Well, I believe that there, it is. In fact, what's so interesting is that Paul in his writings so often reminds the church of the gospel. Now remember, Paul's writing to Christians that are in Ephesus and Colossae and Rome and, and Philippi, right? He's writing to a group of believers and, and look how often, and I'm not gonna read all the verses, but it's so good for us to remember because here we are in church and we can look at the gospel as something that's just a past event, but something that doesn't necessarily affect my everyday living and produce meaning and purpose in my life. But look what Paul says. He says in Galatians 1.11, for I would have you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not not man's gospel. How many of you are grateful that it wasn't man's plan, but it was God's plan, right? He goes on, and Philippians, he says this. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now look at this in Corinthians. He says, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, in other words, those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you of something. What is it that you want to remind us of, Paul? Well, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Do you see what it says there? You received it in the past, but you are now standing in it in the present. And he goes on and he says this, and by which you are being saved. In other words, from this point forward and from this point forward and from this point forward, I continue to live in and out of this story called the gospel. 
He goes on, Romans uh, chapter one, he says, so I'm eager. Now, once again, he's writing a letter to the church in Rome. He is somewhere else and he says, I'm coming to see you. I'm coming to preach to you, right? And you're like, oh man, Paul's coming. You know, that's like, you know, some famous preacher's coming. I wonder what Paul is going to preach. Is he gonna preach some heavy revy that he just got from heaven? What is it that Paul's gonna share with the church that's in Rome? And he says, I'm eager to come preach, what? The gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, the point that I'm simply trying to make this morning is that the story that you and I are invited to be a part of, the bigger story, the story that gives us identity, the story that gives us meaning, the story that gives us purpose, the story that shapes my daily living here on planet Earth is the gospel. What is the gospel. The, the, the early Christians, there was a little word, a little Greek word called euangelion. That's a fun word to say. You want to say it with me? Ready? Euangelion. Euangelion. Look, you're all Greek scholars. I'm not, by the way, so I just read it somewhere else and try to pronounce it. Euangelion. But, but this word euangelion literally means good news. And the early believers, they weren't the ones that uh, came up with the idea to even use this word. They borrowed it from Roman culture because what would happen is that Rome would be in a battle. And so in Rome, and then they're out on kind of wherever it is on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, and there's some battle going on, and they win the battle. There's a victory, and a euangelion or a messenger would run back to Rome and at every town between the battlefront and Rome, he would announce good news, Roma Victoria, Roma Victoria. In other words, Rome has been victorious. The battle has been won. And it's considered euangelion, good news. Well, the early Christians picked up on this and they just borrowed this word right from Roman culture to say that, that they couldn't help but talk about the good news because of the victory that they had received in Jesus Christ. Euangelion, euangelion, good news. Christos victoria. Christ is victorious. And they couldn't help talk about the good news that had transformed their life and was causing them to live in an entirely different way. But one of the things that happened in the early church is that, that this good news began to get replaced with fake news. Anyone seen any fake news lately? <laughs> See, the early church dealt with fake news too. Counterfeit stories that told of a different gospel. In fact, look what Paul actually says in Galatians chapter one. He says, I am shocked. Now remember, he's writing to a church. I am shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are, a follow, you are following, look at this, a different way that pretends to be the good news. But it's not good news at all. You are being fooled by those who are deliberately twisting the truth concerning Jesus. And, and so you see, it's, it's important for those of us who are part of this church that we clearly understand that, man, in the world in which we live, and even within the church world, there are counterfeit stories. There are fake news. There's fake news that pretends to be the good news, but ends up causing us to live in and be a part of a different story, a story that God didn't intend. And so the question that we need to answer is, well, then what is this good news? 
Now, I thought a really good place to start would be for us to talk about, and I hope the board doesn't fall apart. There it is. Um, I thought it would be really fun for me to draw upon my inner Bob Ross <laughs> and try to draw some pictures. This will be fun. Um, but, but what's the story that many of your friends, many of your coworkers, maybe, maybe of your neighbors, some of your family, what's the story they believe the Bible tells? And it kind of goes something like this. So here we are on planet Earth. And let me draw a couple of people. So there's a man. And um, there's a woman. I th yep, that's good, I think. Let's make them smile because they're happy to be on planet Earth. So here we are on planet Earth, right? We're born, and the story goes something like this. I'm here for, the Bible says three score and ten. That's like, I think that's 70. Is that 70, right? Well, some of us are going to live to 70, and some maybe a little less, and some a little more, and some of you who are super healthy and the rest of us are all jealous of are probably going to live to be like 100 or something, right? And so you have this journey through life, right? And so this is the story that your friends believe the Bible tells called the gospel. And it goes something like this, that, that here we are born on planet Earth, we've got a certain amount of time that we're going to live, and once we get to the end of our time here on Earth, our kind of, you know, deathbed, so to speak, that there's this thing that happens called the judgment. Now we don't know, like, we're not quite sure who it is or how that all works, right? But, but what we know is that at the end of our life, we've, we will probably go to one of two places, right? Now, this is, this is kind of what many of your friends believe. Some of them might believe that they're going to be reincarnated as something else. I don't think that's a great plausible study, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, but many people believe that the story the Bible tells is that when I get to the end of my life, there's this judgment, and I end up in one of these two places, now remember, this is the story that many of your friends, they believe this Bible tells, right? And so the question is, when I get to the end of my life, there's this judgment that happens and, and I end up either going to heaven or I go to hell. And we don't quite know what heaven is, right? I mean, is it like, I don't know, kind of, you know, adult diaper, strum a harp, live on a cloud? I, I don't know, but it sounds good and it sounds a whole lot better than hell. The question is, how do I get there? Now, this is the story that many of your friends believe the Bible tells, is, is telling. So we get to the end, I go either to heaven or hell. How do I get there? Well, it's all dependent on when I go through life, how much good I do versus how much bad I do, right? And so in a sense, the story that they're believing the Bible tells, which they, we, call, we believe to be the gospel, is that if I live more above the line than below the line, right, that somehow karma, when I get to the end, allows me to kind of end up going to heaven, and I get to whatever that is, but I just know that it's better than hell. Right? This is the story that many people believe the Bible tells. In fact, some of you might actually be in the room going, well, isn't it? And because I love you, and because I care about you, I need to tell you that that's not the truth. <laughs> this is not what the Bible teaches us. This is not the story that the Bible tells us. Now, the problem is that it's kind of littered with some half-truths and partial truths, and, and we're trying to figure all that kind of stuff out. But this is a story that many people believe the Bible tells us and that called the gospel. But the question is, if the Bible tells a story called the gospel, and the gospel is the story that you and I are invited into that gives us meaning and purpose in life, then what is the gospel if it isn't that? 
Well, I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles over to Mark chapter one. And this is what it says in Mark chapter one. I'm gonna go through this kind of quickly um, because the guys will get, I'll get in trouble with the guys. I'm gonna run out of time. All right, here we go. Here's what the Bible says. Mark chapter one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Okay, so if I'm looking for a place to understand the beginning of the gospel, we know it's concerning the son of God. Okay, this is a good place to start. Verse two. As it is written in the prophet, or the Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare a way for you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so what's happening here is Mark is recording uh, uh, the fact that the story that he's about to tell us about the gospel is actually part of a bigger story. And the story that he goes back to is during the time of Isaiah. Now Isaiah's in the old, he's in the Old Testament. He was this prophet in the Old Testament. And Isaiah was prophesying to the children of Israel and to the people of God after they came out of Babylon. So after, if you know the story, God creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin, right? They shake their fist at God. We want our own way. He kicks them out of the garden, but God who is loving says, I'm gonna send a rescuer someday who's gonna come save you and rescue you, right? He, they, there's this nation that gets birthed out of that hundreds of years later. And they end up in Egypt, right? And you remember the story? Guys ever seen, uh, you know, Ben-Hur and all that stuff, right? And so, so they're in Egypt, they're in slavery, right? And God delivers them out of slavery and out of Egypt and he takes them into the promised land. Oh, there's that 40 years where they wander around in the wilderness. They get into the promised land and what we discover is that they don't really do a good job of following God even though God has fulfilled his promise to them of giving them a land. And so what happens is that they end up going in exile. Babylon gets raised up against them and they capture Israel and they take them in exile. That's where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that whole story takes place, right? And what Isaiah is saying is, on the other side of this exile, there's a rescuer who's coming. You're part of a bigger story. Pick it up in verse 14. Skip down to verse 14 of Mark chapter one. Look what he says. After this, John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Okay, so we're connected to this bigger story. Now Jesus is going to proclaim what is the good news. Here we go. We're gonna find out what the good news. Anybody else excited or is it just me? Here's what he says in verse 15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Oh, Jesus, what are you talking about? He says, well, Jesus shows up from heaven and he shows up with an announcement. And the announcement is that the time has come. Well, what for, Jesus? For the kingdom of God to come near. In other words, this story of the gospel isn't a story about you and I going somewhere. It's a story about God coming near to us. See, this story is all focused on me and my behavior. But the story that the Bible talks about is focused on God and what he has done through Jesus for each one of us. That's a game changer. In fact, what Jesus talks about is the fact that the kingdom of God, and this is really the story that I want you to walk away with today, is that what you and I have been invited into is the story of the kingdom of God of God. This is the gospel. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God over, over 50 times in the book of Matthew. In fact, his first adult conversation in Mark or Matthew chapter four was actually all about the kingdom of God 
or the kingdom of heaven. So just in the interest of time, I want to show you a little video that just helps you and I explain if this gospel story that you and I are invited into isn't just about me being rescued and saved and getting a golden ticket, but being invited to participate in the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Let's watch this. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling 
among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus's sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So if stories are those tools that life uses to help us find our identity and our meaning and purpose, this is the story that we are invited to be a part of. And I want you to notice something as I close this morning, that it's not a story that's just about you and the forgiveness of your sins, but it's a story that extends into today and tomorrow and next week and next month and year after year after year of what? Us being ambassadors of the king here on earth. And and my question to you this morning, just as we close, is what does that mean for your life? Is this the story that you're a part of? Or is the story that you're a part of just here and now? Is the story just, um, I'm trying to do my best to raise my kids and, and have a good marriage and earn enough money to be able to take a vacation and some of those kinds of things? Is it all of the stuff that we can see and experience with our senses? Or is there a bigger story that Jesus is inviting you into? Well, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is inviting you. In fact, every time Jesus would say, come follow me, the invitation was to leave behind the story that we were a part of and to join him in the story that he was unfolding here on planet Earth. And so the question that I have for you this morning is, is both personal and a question that really affects all of us as a family. Do you, do we, 
believe that we're a part of this greater story. Because if you do, it changes everything. It changes how you relate to your spouse. It changes how you love and raise your kids. It changes how you look at money. It changes how you look at time. It changes how you look, your, look at your talent. It changes how you look at your neighbors. It changes those that you see on social media and maybe don't agree with. It changes everything. Because we're ambassadors of the kingdom here on earth. But it doesn't just change things for you personally. It changes what we do as a family. Because all of a sudden, we're here not just to gather, to worship, to enjoy Jesus, and hopefully there's a good, some good preaching and some prayer and some of those kinds of things. We're not here just for those things. And those things are good, wonderful, and beautiful. It's part of being the part of this family. But if we're part of this bigger story, then we're called to be salt and light. And my question to you this morning is, what would it look like if we were a people on mission with this as our story? Who would be, who would be impacted outside of the walls of these churches? Is it possible that we could impact the foster care system in this state? Is it possible though, that those who are marginalized, those who are poor, those who are forgotten would find friends and those who love them and serve them in spite of the circumstance that they might find themselves in? Is it possible that, that there are people around the world, in Haiti, in Honduras, people around our country that would be served and impacted by us, our talents, our time, our resources, because we're part of a bigger story. And so this morning, I want us to just focus for a moment on this invitation from Jesus to be a part of a bigger story. There's this verse, it starts obviously, this invitation starts with us being forgiven, but it doesn't end with us being forgiven. Jesus, one of the most famous passages or famous verses ever to be written and, and we, we quote it, you see it at football games and I've even quoted it here over the last past week, few weeks. But Jesus says this in, in, in John chapter three, he said, for God, and you know it, so loved the world that whoever would believe in him, what? Would not perish, but what would have everlasting life. And so there's this invitation, not just that I'm going to be forgiven, but that I would step into another story, a story that is filled with the life and the potential of God. But there's a little word that, that John uses, and it's the word believe in. And in the Greek, we read it in the English, and yeah, believe in. I, be, you know, I believe in the Seahawks, right? I believe in the ducks. I believe in the beavers, kind of. And we use that phrase all the time because it's an appropriate phrase. But John, when he was writing, I believe, those who believe in, he's like, no, 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 that's not a strong enough word. That doesn't define what it means to believe in Jesus. And he actually uses this little phrase that's not believe in, but believe on. And what he's saying is that this invitation from Jesus to be forgiven, but to enter into his story, do you, would you put the full weight of who you are on him and his story. See, it's one thing for us to be around church and we can be around Jesus, 
We can know all about Jesus. We can talk about the, the legs and the stool and all this kind of stuff. We can be around him. We can kind of touch him. We can kind of put parts of our life on him, right? Kind of shifting our balance from day to day and circumstance to circumstance. But what Jesus' invitation is, would you put the full weight of who you are on me? That's his invitation. And that applies to us in two ways. One, there are some in the room this morning that, man, the invitation from Jesus is, would you trust me fully for the first time ever? Would you receive the forgiveness that I came to give you so that you could be free? And just as we're in this moment, I just want you to close your eyes. And just as we think about that for the moment, maybe there's someone in this room this morning and you're simply saying, man, I want to trust Jesus. I want to put the full weight of who I am on him and have his forgiveness be my portion. And if that's you this morning, would you simply slip up your hand and say, man, I want to trust Jesus that way. I want to put my life in his. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is salvation because of what you have done on the cross. Thank you that we are forgiven of our sins. Thank you that there is freedom in your life. We thank you. But Lord, for the rest of us in the room, just with your eyes closed, we're going to sing a song real quick. But I want to ask you this question. Is the full weight of who you are on Jesus? Are you willing to step into his story and trust him and believe him above all else?